everybody, it's David Creek. I want to thank you for listening to the Westchester Church Podcast. We're coming to you from the Philadelphia area. And you can check out our website at westchestercfc.com. Westchestercfc.com. Smooth like hot butter on a biscuit. (laughs) All right. Well, dear church, letters of the risen Jesus to the churches of Revelation. Well, two weeks ago, we began with the message that Jesus sent to his church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. And this morning, we turn our attention to the very next of those letters to a church in a place called Smyrna. And so we we begin this morning in Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last, who died and who came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but, he says, you are rich. And I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the one who conquers, they will not be hurt by the second death. Well, Smyrna was was a city known for its resplendent beauty. It goes by the name of Izmir today in Turkey. It's just this beautiful city standing at the foot of the Aegean Sea. And in the backdrop, you have this sprawling mountainscape. It is a breathtaking place in Smyrna, but... For anyone who would dare orient their life around Jesus Christ, though, Smyrna was also a dangerous place. It was an inhospitable place. It was a sadistic place. And Jesus, as he's described to us in chapter 1, with his eyes of flaming fire, he sees this. And Jesus gives voice to the perils that they are undergoing. And so the first thing that he says to them is that I know what you are going through. Jesus knows the hardships of his people. He feels our anguish. He counts every single tear that we cry in this life. He knows what we're going through. And so he says that I know your tribulation. And that word tribulation, it does not mean that a few of the people in this church may have recently had a bad day, but rather what that word tribulation means is is heavy-duty pressure. It is the image of a person who is crushing grapes in order to make wine, and that is a perfect analogy for our suffering in this life. The only way that, that he turns water into wine in our souls, in our action, in our conduct is first, we have to be crushed just like grapes. It's the idea of something heavy that's just squeezing the life out of you. 
And specifically what was going on in Smyrna, as well as most of these congregations in Asia Minor that, that will appear in, in um, our um, studies, is that he, he is primarily addressing backlash that Christians received who refused to join the nationalistic cult of the time. Where everywhere that these Christians went, from the marketplace to the workplace to even athletic events in the venues, it was mandated that they and everyone else emphatically confess aloud something along the lines of Rome is the eternal kingdom of all the kingdoms that have ever existed. You would have to say out loud that Caesar is Lord. Caesar is God. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. At Jupiter's command, Caesar rules and governs the universe. And by his gospel, and only by his gospel, we can be saved. And the imperial cult had demanded that that you would literally pray to Caesar and offer him worship. And as we may expect, the, really the majority of the population in these cities just, just blindly went along for that ride. Because after all, that is the easiest thing to do sometimes. And yet, as you may imagine as well, for all of these Christians, though, this presented a, an enormous problem, though. <laughs> and that's because when everybody else is worshiping the emperor, except for you and all the other Christians... What this screams to all of your coworkers, to all of your relatives and neighbors, is that no, 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 no. Hey, by the way, guys, Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. And by his gospel, and only by his gospel, we can be saved. It seems so easy for, for us in our society to say that, but, but in their society, I mean, it really came with a price. Where the tone of the society in response to, to the Christian community was, okay, that's, that's what they're claiming right now today. Yet let's see if they continue proclaiming that Jesus Christ is Lord. I mean, it's easy to say Jesus Christ is Lord as you drink the cup on Sunday morning. And yet then on Monday morning, they went to work only to discover, hey, you don't work here anymore. I'm not going to say why. You are just out of a job, though, so good luck. And then they began going into the marketplace, trying to buy food for their children and for, for their families, but, but suddenly nobody wanted to do business with them. Where it's like, yes, we, we have all of this, this food and supplies, but... We're not going to sell any of it to you because you don't worship Caesar like we do. And suddenly they found themselves being treated as village idiots and as outcasts and as pariahs wherever they went. And so the imperial cult began dangling this remedy over the heads of the Christian churches. You don't have to to continue living in poverty any longer. Your family doesn't have to continue starving. We can bring an end to all of this right now. All you have to do is say denounce. And denounce this Jesus of yours. Make the Roman government your identity. Worship Caesar. And I'm telling you, you will have even greater jobs than you did before. 
Your children will have all the food that they can possibly eat and then some. All you have to do is, is to denounce Jesus. And as you might imagine, that was a tantalizing um, proposition for, for a lot of, of people who are Christians. And yet Jesus is addressing a church that has not gone that route just yet. And so he says to them, I know your poverty. He's saying to them, I know that some of you have lost jobs because of me. I know that your children went to bed last night with an empty stomach. And then he says that I know the slander of those who say that they're Jews, but they're really not Jews. What I think this means is that all over in the first century world, non-Christian Jews were in the faces of Christian Jews. And the signal that they were giving them is that you are a disgrace to the God of your ancestors. They would say things like, you are not a real Jew. You have sold out your identity. You are no longer fit to be called a, a, um, a child of Abraham. And it was a lot like in China where, where a dear brother of ours, whose American name had been Peter, he was baptized in the Christ, but immediately his friends got in his face. And they said, you were cheated by the Americans. Jesus does not come from China. Jesus comes from, from America, or so they thought. And they said, listen, if you continue being a Christian, you're, you're no longer a real Chinese man. You are a disgrace to the Communist Party. You're not a Chinese person anymore. You're, you're, you're a Christian now. Peter was like, you say that like it's a bad thing. Amen, yes, I am a Christian, and that is where my identity lies. And yet for so many Christians living in this first century age, though, many people who were not Christians went around claiming that churches were, were doing all kinds of horrible things they really didn't do. And yet Jesus is reassuring them, though. He says that these guys are saying that they're Jews, but they're really not the people of God. As he says in John chapter 8 quite strongly about the Pharisees, so Jesus says here, he says they are a synagogue of Satan. In other words, they, they have become the accuser. They have become the adversary of God himself. And, and in all actuality, he says they are the ones who have been cheated, not you. And so you just keep on living the Christian life. Because after all, he says, I know your tribulation. I know of your poverty and of the slander that you are undergoing. And just as easily, brothers and sisters, Jesus knows about our tribulations. He knows about our sufferings that we undergo. And yet, as so oftentimes seems to be the case, Yes, Jesus knows the tribulations that they have undergone, but, but he's saying all of that to say this. He's saying, get ready. Buckle up. And that's because it's about to get even worse. And so the message that he has for them midway in the letter is that you have suffered so much, and yet you're about to suffer even more. Well, that doesn't sound like good news, does it? And yet we may remember that once 
Satan stood before God in accusation of Job. God says to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Because no matter what you throw at him, he will remain faithful to me. Maybe God has said to Satan, Have you considered my church in Smyrna? It doesn't matter what you throw at the at these people, they will remain faithful to me. Jesus says, Satan is going to throw some of you into prison in order that you may have a time of testing and you will have tribulation I'm anew, Jesus says. And I mean, just as it was in the book of Job, so it is for, for the church in Smyrna, as well as for you and me, there is no exit ramp. There is no cheat code. There is no easy way out of this hurricane that is coming your way. It's coming, so get ready, he's saying. And whether it's Smyrna or it's Job or it's things and and seasons you and I have undergone in our lifetime, sometimes it, it just feels like the hurricane is never going to stop. And yet even though their tribulations are about to intensify, what does Jesus say to them? Jesus says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. At first glance, it seems easier said than it is done, I know. And yet, here is how we can do that. Here is how we cannot fear what is about to come our way. And that is having a perspective from above. Scripture refers to it as having the mind of Christ. And so one by one, Jesus is giving them a brand new perspective. He says, I know that you have poverty, but you can take joy in that poverty because actually, he says, you are rich. Well, somebody might say, I mean, what are you talking about, Jesus? We, we just lost our house last Tuesday. We don't have any money to buy food, and and now it sounds like we're on our way to prison. What, What do you mean that we are rich? Well, Jesus knows that they're rich because once upon a time, he lived in poverty. Jesus was homeless. As As we read in the Gospels, the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head, and yet... By walking with the Father every single day and every single moment in prayer, by being filled with the Holy Spirit and by storing up treasures in heaven, even though Jesus was poor, Jesus was rich. And he was richer than anybody has ever been. What he's saying to them is that economically you are destitute. And yet spiritually though, spiritually you are filthy, stinking rich. And with the mind of Christ within us, our tribulations will be seen by us as God sees them, and we will fear no more. We mourn our loved ones also who have passed in the same way. They grow old, they grow sick, and before we know it, we are at the crematory. Just one of those things that punctures a gaping wound in our soul, but God in his word says, don't despair when that happens. And that's because they're not even dead. They're asleep, as Jesus says. They're they're just having a nap someplace in another room. 
And that's because, after all, as Jesus says here, these are the words of the first and the last, of the one who died and of the one who lived again. And his resurrection is the guarantee of the resurrection of all of those who sleep in the name of Jesus Christ. And with the mind of Christ, we see tribulation as God sees it and we fear no more. And then Jesus says to them that for ten days... For ten days you will have tribulation. And again, at first glance, we might read that and think, well, what's, what's so bad about that? They're going to have hardship for just ten more days? I mean, that, that doesn't seem too bad. I know people who would say, I mean, I, I would give anything to have just ten days of suffering in my life. I mean, that, that sounds pretty nice. And yet we have to remember The Revelation was written deliberately as a book of symbol. I mean, Jesus literally doesn't have seven eyes, and he's not literally a lamb who walks around looking like a lamb. Satan is not literally a giant red dragon, and in the same way, our sufferings are going to be much longer than just ten days. Rather, what Jesus is doing is, is a beautiful thing. He's taking these people who are are hurting so bad under the weight of one distress and one hardship after another, and he's giving them an eternal heavenly perspective. He's saying that I know the tribulations that you have endured, and I know the far worse ones which are on the horizon, and I know that your your weeks of suffering have, have become months, and that the months have turned into years. It's going to hurt like hell. And it's going to feel as if it's never going to come to an end. And yet you can sleep peacefully tonight. And that's because after all, it's only ten days. Our suffering in this world is is only a week and a half of our existence. It will not last forever. It's just ten days of tribulation in the scale of eternity. And then it is no more. I think about the Apostle Paul. Paul speaks of this so oftentimes in Scripture. And I think of of all the people who have ever lived, other than, than, of course, Jesus, nobody suffered more tribulation than the Apostle Paul. He was the one who was beaten, who was arrested, who was stoned, who was shipwrecked, who was hungry and naked and stoned and beheaded. And yet, whenever he spoke about tribulation, though, in this life, it wasn't something to be feared anymore, but but rather how Paul viewed it was as a blessing. It was a privilege. It was fellowship with Jesus, the man of sorrows. And that was where his transformation was derived from. I think about what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 where he says, So therefore we do not lose hearts. How even though our outer self is wasting away and deteriorating, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And then notice how he describes his tribulation, which, which, which was so severe. Where he then says, For this light, momentary affliction. It's, it's just a momentary affliction. All of this, he says, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comprehension. 
And to this he also says in Romans chapter 8 and verse 18 that I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Anybody who spends even one second in God's paradise, looking back on all of the hardships that we encountered in this world, all the tears that we cried ourselves sleep to, it will all seem as if it were a distant dream. Because after all, it's just ten days of tribulation, and then it is no more. God makes a promise to his people that your suffering is about to intensify, but then, last of all this morning, God makes one final promise to his people. Where he says, be faithful unto death. Now, we read that in a different way that they would have. We read that as, as mostly remain faithful to God until you grow old and you die one day. And that, that certainly applies. And yet to the people in this house church 2,000 years ago, what Jesus is really saying to them in HD color is that some of you are going into prison and you will never get out of that jail. And that's because you're going to die for your faithfulness to me. He's letting them know that some of you will be called upon to be my martyrs. And so he's saying to them, be faithful all the way to the prison cell. Be faithful all the way to the guillotine. Be faithful to the Colosseum, to the lions. And be faithful all the way to the grave knowing that no matter what this world throws at them or at us, he says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Well, in the Greco-Roman world of the first century, anybody who was deemed a winner, whether athletics or on battlefields or as I'm a thinker in philosophy, they would be adorned with a wreath of olives, sometimes a wreath of... of um, even celery, as hard as that is to imagine. Back then, that was, was a, a huge honor. And yet the one who wore the crown in a civic sense, that was a winner. That was a hero. It was the face of victory. And yet, you know, for a very long time, these Christians, though, have been viewed in the exact opposite as that. They have been the losers of their society. And yet the God who sees the rich as poor and as the poor is being rich, he says that the so-called losers in my kingdom, the so-called losers are actually the winners. And the so-called winners of this age, they will actually be the losers. In this world, they, they are parading up and down the streets wearing, wearing a crown of celery. You can let them have that for, for a like 15 minutes of fame. And yet he's saying, but in my kingdom though, you will forevermore be adorned in the diadems of overcoming. I will give you the crown of life and you will be victorious throughout all of the ages. And then at last Jesus says, and all of those who remain faithful and overcome all of this tribulation, they will not be hurt by the second death. Well, there are at least two deaths that John speaks of in Revelation. One, obviously, 
is, is I'm a bodily death. And yet the second death that he speaks of are, are all the people who rejected Jesus' power in their lives. These are all the people who laughed at the idea of Jesus being king of kings and, and who bowed down before Caesar and before the Roman government instead. And so to the church at Smyrna, Jesus says, do not be afraid of the first bodily death. If you are unafraid of the first death, then you will have nothing to worry about concerning death number two, because it has no hold of you whatsoever. Well, we're coming in for a landing now. And roughly 60 years after Jesus sent this message to the church at Smyrna, there was a Christian whose name was um, Polycarp, and he was put to death in Smyrna. As the story goes, all that Polycarp had to do was to renounce Jesus and to drop the incense in the altar and say, Caesar is Lord. And yet instead, what, what Polycarp said in response is, is that for 80 and 6 years, I have served Jesus. And he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And upon that, Polycarp was strapped to a stake. And he was lit on fire in Smyrna. A man who this world was not worthy of. Intensifying tribulation awaited Polycarp. It awaited the church at Smyrna. And hardships of, of every shape and form awaits you and awaits me. Now people may not be lighting us on fire this morning or banning us from shopping at Wegmans. And yet I know for a fact that, that there are people in this church who for a very long time have been feeling crushed underneath the weight of sickness, of finances, maybe of anxiety or depression, or by struggles and circumstances of all kinds. And yet when we begin to see hardship the way that Jesus sees it, we see it no longer as something to be afraid of or to sweep underneath the rug, but now we see tribulation as a blessing, as a privilege to draw near to God as the furnace of Christian transformation where we commune most intimately with Jesus Christ. And so my brothers and sisters, Jesus knows your tribulations and he knows mine. He feels your anguish. He counts all of the tears that we cry. He knows what his people are going through. He knows our hardships greater than our hardships know us. And to you and to me and to all of his people throughout the ages, he says, do not fear. Don't lose heart. Don't give up. Because after all, in the context of eternal life in paradise, all of your hardship put together, it's just 10 days of tribulation. And then it is no more.